please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 4 and verses 21 to 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Thus far is a reading of, of God's Word. Well, here in our text, in verses 21 to 31, we have a, a summation of Paul's argument over the last two chapters, which is to go back to living under the law is to put yourself back under the old era of redemptive history. Right? An era which was never meant to be permanent. And an era which, while it stood, was restrictive, imprisoning, and a guardian. Only intended to be preparatory, pointing towards the arrival of the coming Redeemer, Jesus Christ in the flesh. Right? But once Christ came in the flesh, that that system came crumbling down. It toppled over. No longer being necessary, having served its purpose. But for some reason now, these Gentile converts, who at one time understood that, now have allowed themselves to become bewitched again. And to fall under the spell of these false Judaizing teachers who wanted to make free men and women in Christ slaves once more. Are you bringing them back under the unbearable yoke of the law? Now, what we see taking place here is, is what we see constantly taking place in the world and amongst Christians. And we see taking place then, but also taking place today. And what is that that I'm talking about? Well, ultimately what we see taking place is the, is the work of the devil. Right, as the devil himself is working behind these Judaizing teachers, right, to, to lead these Gentile converts away from God. The devil is doing the very same thing today. This devil who disguises himself, Paul says, as an angel of light to make you believe that what you're doing 
as he gets you to naively follow his will as the right thing to do. Right? That's what he's done here with these Gentile converts. Right? Satan oftentimes brings things to our attention that is good. Or he brings things to your attention that can be good or that were good or have the ability of being good. But he, he does so with the most devious and evil of intentions. Let's take something like holiness, for example. Right? We are called to be holy, right? Being holy is good. Or say, be holy for God is holy. Now, we are holy in one sense, right? We've been made saints already. We have been made holy ones. But we are also called to be continuing through in sanctification, being made holy, right? After the image of Christ as well. And so holiness is a good thing, isn't it? Holiness is something we ought to desire to pursue. But what the devil does is the devil comes around and he, and he twists it and he perverts it so that we pursue holiness unlawfully or in a sinful manner because the whole goal of the devil is to harm you. Right? His whole goal is to kill you if he's able to, right? spiritually in fact. And so what he does is he makes the pursuit of holiness all of a sudden, something good to now be a thing of pride. Right? Now, now what he makes holiness to be is, a, is kind of like a sport. It's a competition. Right? Who can be holier than the other person? Uh, it's a, it becomes a, a point of, of boasting among, among many Christians. And then even the reason why you pursue holiness from your heart now changes. That's what the devil gets us to do. No longer do we desire to to pursue holiness because we want to glorify God and be made like Christ. But we pursue holiness because we want to be recognized by people. We want to be seen by by men. We want the applause of others. We want people to say, Oh man, have you seen so-and-so? How far they're willing to go, the great lengths they will go to deny themselves. That's what we want. That's what Satan does amongst the body. It is not that Satan shows us things that are overtly wicked and evil. Because we'd all know not to do them. But rather what he does is he brings before our eyes things that are spiritual. He puts before our eyes things that are good, things that are holy. But he uses those things to play upon the pride of every one of our hearts. So that we would go after them in a spiritually harmful manner. And this is what he has done in the, in the church is of Galatia. Right? Satan is working through these Judaizing teachers. And what he has them saying to the saints is this. It's not like we're telling you to do anything that's unbiblical, Gentile converts. The Scripture says that we were to be circumcised. Abraham, Father Abraham was circumcised. Why wouldn't you want to follow Scripture? They say, the law that we follow... The Mosaic Law, that's not man-made law, that's law that comes from God. If you say that you are a child of God and in covenant with God, wouldn't you want to follow all of God's laws and not just some of them? That's the kind of perversion and twisting of the Scriptures that's taking place here. He's not using something evil, he's using something that was at one time very good. But what they are blinded to, what Satan will not allow them to convey is the fact that The Mosaic Law was was meant for a particular people at a particular time 
and it served its purpose. Right? It was meant to teach them about their sin, to point to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we are to look to nothing else but Christ. Right? That's what they don't tell the saints here. Right? That He is the reality, that we are to trust and follow Him alone, that we are not to look back to types and shadows, but rather to look to Christ as the all-sufficient Lord of the church who provides for us everything that we need. And to go back, to look back, to try to live back in that old era of redemptive history is to fall from grace and to lose out on the redemption we so desperately need that Christ purchased for all those who believe. And so in response to Satan's objective to bring about confusion and disorder and disunity, what Paul has is, is been writing about, and the reason why Paul writes is to kind of reverse that. And to bring about clarity and order and unity amongst God's people. And he does that today by causing them to, to think back to, to the beginning. Right? To recall the history of God's people. So that they would kind of clearly understand that, that whoever is in Christ is free. That whoever is in Christ is already members of the household of God. You are already children of Abraham. So there's no need to look back to the Old Covenant. There's no need to go back to those ways. And so our first point this morning, as we then turn our attention to the the text, we'll call this first point then the facts. The facts. Here in verses 21 to 23, Paul simply is stating facts that he's using to set up his point. Look with me starting at verse 21 again, please. Tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now here, Paul is speaking to all parties involved. Jew and Gentile alike. Whoever it is that is seeking to to place themselves under the law. So he asks them, do you not listen to the law? Now remember that word law much like the word offspring that we looked at maybe a month or two ago, can have various meanings. So it's important to to understand what he means by the law. Now, it could mean kind of one of three things here. Uh, The first thing it could mean is the law of Moses. right? That would be a a usage that we read about just in Galatians chapter 3. If you remember there, Paul says, why the law? He talks about the law that came 430 years after the promise. Right? There, he's, there he's addressing the law of Moses. But it also could mean the Pentateuch. Right? It also could mean the first five books of Moses. Uh, Jesus uses it that way in Luke 24, verse 44. When speaking to his disciples, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It could also be used with reference to the entire Old Testament. An example of this would be John 15.25. Jesus is speaking about how the world will hate Him. And He says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Right? They hated Me without cause. Right? There is talking about the whole Old Testament which spoke about Him. Right? Everything there had to be fulfilled. In our text though, I think it really could be used one of two of these ways. Uh, the first way would be to, that what Paul is saying is, is he's using that word law to speak of the Pentateuch. 
And it, it could make sense that way because, because what does Paul say? He says, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Right? And then he goes on to describe Hagar and Sarah. Well, we have to ask ourselves, where is that written? Well, it's written in the book of Genesis, isn't it? Right? That's where you learn about Isaac and Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah. And so that could be a way that he's using it. Right? Do you not, did you not listen to, the, to what Moses recorded for us in the book of Genesis? Or he could be using it to speak once again of the law of Moses. And I think this is probably the better way to take it. It's the more consistent way that it's been used throughout this letter thus far. And it makes sense that right, he's, he's talking about here the uh, do you not listen to the law? And then he goes on to talk about uh, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Well, what is, what is the law of Moses but slavery, he's been saying. Right? And so he's, he's equating the two there. So he's saying, you who seek to, to be under the law, do you not listen to the law of Moses? Do you not hear what the law of Moses has to say to you? That, it, that the law of Moses makes one a slave? It makes you a, a child of the slave woman? Hagar, who corresponds to Mount Sinai? And he's asking this because he's saying, if you knew the true nature of the law, if you knew what the law required of you, if you knew what the law demanded, you would never seek to put yourself under it. Their problem, though, brothers and sisters, the one that, that Paul is addressing here, is a perpetual problem that we continually see going on even today in the church. And that is this, believing that what Christ did in accomplishing His work is simply a help or an aid for us to now fulfill the, the, the commands of the law through our own law-keeping. Right? But we need to understand that, that we cannot do that. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a failure to understand the scope of the law. It's a failure to understand what the law demands. And thus, what does it do? It makes the gospel right, nothing more than our law-keeping. Right? If, if what Jesus did was just to help for us to now keep the law, what does it do but turn the gospel into law-keeping? What does it do but it makes not Christ but us our own Savior? Right? This is what the, the Catholics are guilty of, isn't it? But it's also what many Protestants are guilty of as well. We are just guilty of it maybe in a different way. Right? Many Protestants might reject Catholic doctrine and Catholic law, but there are so many Protestants who, who make up laws for themselves, who set themselves up as little popes in their own heart, right? who think that in keeping these laws I am somehow being made righteous before God, that I am receiving some favor from God in this. But in both ways, we see the, the pride of man oozing out of the heart of both types of people. Isn't it that pride that oftentimes bubbles up in our own hearts from time to time as well? And why is it, brothers and sisters, that we love to be in bondage? Right? We are told that we have liberty in Christ. Perfect liberty in Christ. And the moment it's declared, we put ourselves back under something else. These saints are doing it by turning back to the law of Moses. Right? But we love bondage just as much as they. Perhaps it's not the bondage of the law of Moses that we turn to. For many of us, perhaps it's the bondage to the flesh. 
How many of us make ourselves captives to our own evil desires? Right? Submitting ourselves to them, that those desires that still remain in our heart. Right? Well, Paul points out here today, that's a dangerous place to be in. Right? Because there's a great difference, or there ought to be a great difference between those who are slaves and those who are sons. This is why he then goes on to say this. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Here are just stated facts. Right? These are facts. Abraham had these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now these weren't his only two sons. Right? How many sons did Abraham have? You can say it to yourself. He had eight. Right? He had one by Sarah, one by Hagar. And then after Sarah died, remember he married a new wife, Keturah. And he had six sons by her, so eight sons in total. But only two here are highlighted by Paul because it was only these two who were appointed by God to be types of believer and unbeliever. Right? To be figures for what believers and unbelievers are. And here, as Paul contrasts the two brothers, he continues to state more facts. What are those facts? Well, first he says who their mothers are. Right? Ishmael's mother was a slave woman. That's a fact. She was an Egyptian maidservant. Isaac's mother was Sarah. She was the rightful wife. She was a free woman whom God told would, He would give, allow her to give birth to a son whom He would provide and she believed the promise. There was though another difference between these boys. Not just their mother, that one was a slave woman and one was a free woman, but what also differentiated the two of them was their manner of birth. Paul tells us. In verse 23, Paul says, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, was born according to the flesh. What does that mean? Well, it means Ishmael was born in an ordinary way. I think what it also could perhaps mean is that he was born according to to fleshly desire. Because it was Sarah's fleshly desire that did not allow her to wait on the timing of the Lord. Right? But rather, she sent her husband to go lay with Hagar in order that she might receive the son that she so desperately wanted in the strength of the flesh. Okay. This was different, though, from Isaac's birth. As Paul tells us, he was a son of the free woman who was born through promise. Now, Isaac's birth was ordinary in the sense that right, he had a mother and father as well. But it, it wasn't ordinary in the circumstances for which he was born out of. Right? His birth was extraordinary in the sense that, that God said he would be a child of promise. Right? It was extraordinary in the sense that God came to his parents and said, you are going to give birth to this son, and I, through my power, will make sure it happens. Right? Remember, by nature, Sarah couldn't give birth anymore. Right? That's what we're told in Genesis chapter 18, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman ceased to be with Sarah. And so, Isaac was born by the supernatural power of God. And so we see that these two boys, although similar in many ways, right, same father, both circumcised, both in the covenant of circumcision that was established with Abraham, are different in these significant ways. Right? One was a son born through fleshly desire. One was born through promise. One came by the works of men. One came by faith. One was earthly. One was heavenly. One was carnal. One was spiritual. Why are these facts important though? 
Well, this leads us to point number two, which we'll call the allegory. Right? The allegory. Look with me starting at verse 24, please. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, the first question we want to answer is, what is an allegory? Because we use that word sometimes, not really knowing what it means. Uh, Paul says this is an allegorical interpretation, so we need to ask ourselves, what is an allegory? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines an allegory as a story, a poem, or picture which can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Okay? One biblical commentator defines it as a figurative discourse in which more is intended than is contained in the words taken literally. Very similar. William Perkins kind of simplifies what an allegory means by saying this, that an allegory means that one thing is said and another thing is meant. And so, when we think of allegory, uh, it'd be helpful to think of it kind of like a parable. It's very much like a parable. And thankfully, just like with many of the parables in the Gospels, which are explained to us, so too is this allegory. Right? So we don't have to try to interpret what it means. It, it, Paul comes out and he gives us the divine interpretation of the allegory. And the first thing he says about the allegory is that these two women, Sarah and Hagar, are to be interpreted as two covenants. Right? That's the first thing he says. What are those covenants? The old covenant and the new covenant. Right? The old covenant and the new covenant. It was St. Augustine who, who likewise pointed this out. He said, this interpretation of the passage, handed down to us with apostolic authority, shows how we ought to understand the scriptures of the two covenants. The old and the new. And so the covenant with Hagar corresponds to the old covenant. The covenant of works. An enslaving covenant. A covenant that was established with the physical seed of Abraham. The covenant with Sarah then corresponds to the new covenant. The covenant of grace. A freeing covenant. One that corresponds to the spiritual seed of Abraham. Just like Isaac. So that... uh, And this is an important point. What Paul points out is that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are not two administrations of the one covenant of grace, as our Presbyterian brothers and sisters would like to say. But the divine interpretation given by Paul is what? These are two different covenants. They're two different covenants. The two covenants we need to see are, are born out of Abraham. That's what Paul says. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right? The Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Right? One with Hagar and her seed, which represents figuratively earthly Jerusalem. Or what? Judaism. And Mount Sinai. Right? The other with 
Sarah and Isaac, which figuratively represents the Jerusalem that is above. So that we see that one covenant is earthly and carnal and enslaving. The other covenant is heavenly, spiritual, and grants freedom. This is why I took time earlier in chapter 3 to draw out the distinctions made within the Abrahamic covenant itself and to whom those promises were made towards. Right? That, that becomes port, important here. Right? Remember, there were certain promises given to the physical seed of Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. There was that third promise that we highlighted from Galatians 3.16 that was not made to the physical seed, but to the spiritual seed. This is also the why it's important to understand Abraham had a double seed. He was a father in a double capacity. Right? He had seed by nature and seed by grace. And you need to keep those separate because each of them receive a different inheritance. Right In Genesis 12.3, there was the promise that the seed would, would bless the nations. Right? That was the promise of the new covenant. Right? The promise of the covenant of grace, which only believers are a part of. Which only Abraham's believing spiritual seed belonged to. The new covenant corresponds to that eternal city. Why? Because the new covenant grants to you access to that city. That's not true of Abraham's physical seed. That's not true of just his seed by nature. Yeah, they received promises, but they were earthly promises, not spiritual ones. Right? They received the promise of the land. That's what we see they received, that they got. But how was God going to fulfill that promise? Not through the new covenant, but through the Mosaic covenant. Right, look at Exodus chapter 6 with me. Exodus chapter 6, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Exodus 6 verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptian holds as slaves, and I remembered my covenant. We need to see, brothers and sisters, that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are fulfilled in these two covenants. Right? That, that, that come out of Abraham. Right? But they're fulfilled in two different ways. To two different seeds. To two different peoples. Right? One an earthly people. One a spiritual people. Right, the Mosaic Covenant is simply a development of the Abrahamic Covenant in which God promised to fulfill certain national uh, promises to them. What were they? Well, He was going to make them as vast as the sand of the sea. He was going to give them the promised land of Canaan. Those promises of God to the Israelites was unconditional. He did it. Right? We read in the Old, in the old Covenant. He made them as vast as the sand of the sea. He gave them the possession of the land. 
Now, the problem was is that their end of it was conditional. I'm going to give this to you, but for you to stay in it, you need to obey to stay. So they were cast out. And so like the Abrahamic covenant, though, this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the the old covenant never changed anyone's heart. It demanded law-keeping in order to receive the promise. Right? It kept people enslaved. It also, though, provided right, a sacrificial system of, of rites and ceremonies and types and figures and shadows. But it always were, was always an earthly covenant that pointed to a, a heavenly reality, but it did not give you that heavenly reality. This covenant was a very different nature than to the new covenant. Right? Those in the old covenant were told, now circumcise your hearts. That's not true of the new covenant, is it? Right? Jeremiah tells us in the new covenant, that it is not like the covenant I made with your fathers. He says it is not like that covenant that could be broken. But now in the new covenant, God promises to, to give us a new heart. To write His law in it. To be your God and you His people. And nobody in it will no longer have to teach their neighbor, know the Lord, for all will know Me from the least to the greatest. Which simply means everyone in the new covenant is regenerate. They know God. And he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. See, this covenant, Paul says, frees you, Gentile converts, from the rigorous demands of the old covenant. It provides for you in Christ everything that is demanded by God of you under the law. Paul says, this is what's true of you then if you belong to Sarah. You belong to a, a covenant of freedom. Abraham's physical children were born children of bondage. Right? Abraham's spiritual children are born children of freedom. Right? We need to understand this. Physical birth never gave a Jew any of the benefits of Christ. It was always those who were born supernaturally just like Isaac that were children of promise. It's always been those who were born of spirit and through faith who received the inheritance. Paul's drawing that out. That was true of Isaac and Ishmael, and that's true of Jacob and Esau from Romans chapter 9. And so Paul wants them all to see that the old covenant can never be a way to life for anyone. And that's something that's important for us to see here as well. Because many times, right, you'll hear me from the pulpit talk about our need to obey the law and follow the law. But we need to understand what we mean when we as Christians say that. When we say you must obey the law of God, we never mean it as a way to life. But we always mean it as a way of life. Obeying the law is never a way to earn life. Obeying the law is what the believer does who already has life. We need to understand that. Now it's in verse 27 in this quotation which comes from Isaiah 54, verse 1, that that now proves Paul's point. Here we read in verse 27 again, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now in this text, when it's it's, uh, written in Isaiah 54, what it's describing is Israel's return from exile. Right? They are like a, a barren woman whose children are abandoned in exile and the Lord is promising to have compassion on them again. Now this quotation here in our text is now being applied to the church to show that these, 
Gentile converts are children of the New Jerusalem from above because why? They are the children of the barren woman. They are the children of Sarah of whom no child was expected but whom now there will be more children for than there ever was before under the Old Covenant. And as Sarah received these children supernaturally, so it's going to be the way of the church going forward. Right? It's going to grow supernaturally. And so we as a church ought to rejoice in that thing. Right? This rejoicing that, that Paul quotes here in verse 27, rejoice, O barren, is a rejoicing that belongs to the people of God. Right? Why do we rejoice? Well, we rejoice in our redemption. We rejoice that God has chosen us to have salvation in His Son. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sin. We rejoice in no longer being in bondage. We rejoice in being, being made children of God. That we belong to Sarah, who is a picture of the new covenant. But also Isaac, who is a figure of all true believers. We rejoice that God's plan is, is being wonderfully worked out. We rejoice that God is receiving the glory in it all. Look with me at verses 28 to 31 then. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This takes us to our third and our final point this morning, which we'll call the application. The application. As a result of the supernatural work of God, right, what Paul says is that you and I are made children of promise. Right, by that supernatural work, we are like Isaac, children of promise. But we need to understand it's not just because you believed that you are a child of promise, but rather you are a child of God by virtue of the promise. Do we understand that? Which means you are a child of God because God willed it to be so. That's why you believe to begin with. Right? Nothing was more special about Isaac than Ishmael. The only difference between them was how God viewed them. And he viewed Isaac as a child of promise, chosen him in Christ for the foundation of the world. And he didn't with Ishmael. Right? One he allowed to be born by natural birth. The other he brought through his own strength. And this is true of every single believer and unbeliever today. Right, the unbeliever is born as a child of flesh and they live out their life in the flesh according to the flesh and they will die in the flesh. But the children of promise, although born in the flesh, are only born in the flesh in order that we might receive the promise right, that, that God has promised to all of those who love Him according to His will. And so I want us to see that it's the grace of God and the sovereign election of God that is alone the reason Right, why we are children of promise, right? God alone. And He so wonderfully and powerfully works that you cannot help but come to Him when He draws you. And there's nothing else that you'd want to do but come to Him as He draws you to Himself, as He shows you your sin, as He reveals to you your fleshly nature and what you are deserving of. And then also, though, unveils for you what Christ has done and the love of Christ for you. You cannot help but be drawn to the Savior. To love Christ, to want to serve Christ, to no longer want to be children of bondage, right, serving sin and the commandments of men, but rather wanting to be free men and women in Christ, serving God. Right, that's what's ours as children of promise. But 
that also means, brothers and sisters, though, that we, we don't just now live the Christian life on cruise control. Right? We, do, we don't just do that. The Christian life isn't just something that now is going to become easy to us and be comfortable to us. And we know that because what was true of Ishmael and Isaac, Paul says we all should expect. Right? What was true of Ishmael and Isaac is true of us all. Uh, he's actually referencing here Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Here we have this story of, of Isaac and, and Ishmael. And we see the, the feelings of Ishmael towards Isaac, starting in verse 8 of chapter 21. And the, ch- and the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. Right? And so we see what Paul's saying is that what happened in that day between Isaac and Ishmael is going to happen in their day and it will happen in our day as well. And Scripture tells us that this is true too, doesn't it? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. What does God do? He puts enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So that all who are in Christ and all who are in the devil are going to be at constant enmity towards one another. Right? The world hates us then because we are children of promise. And that hatred is seen today in the world, isn't it? Right? There is open hostility towards Christianity. Right? Our beliefs and our doctrine right, are mocked and ridiculed, aren't they? Right? Just as Isaac mocked and ridiculed his brother. The message that we declare to the world is one that they want to shut out of, of every aspect of life. Right? They only want you to talk about it in the privacy of your own home or, or in church, but nowhere else. We need to see that the mocking of Ishmael towards Isaac was a mocking that proceeded out of jealousy and, and anger over the grace of God that was shown towards Isaac. And in our own lives, right, as the world persecutes us, and despises us and mocks and ridicules us, it too does it out of anger towards the grace of God in our lives. But it hates God. It hates the grace of God. It hates the message of God. It hates the perfect nature of God. It hates that God is pure light. Why? Because this world loves to dwell in darkness. It hates that God is pure goodness. Why? Because they love evil. Ask yourselves, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? We're told because Abel's works were righteous and Cain's were evil. Why did the Jews kill Christ? Because Christ came and brought a righteousness that these evil men despised and so they sought to put Him to death. What does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for they will not inherit with the free woman. What is this but a call to the church? To cast out those false Judaizing teachers who did not heed the instructions of the Apostle Paul, who would not repent of their sin. Right? Like Ishmael, they will have no share in the believer's inheritance. If you want to be slaves, you don't belong to the kingdom. But the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael is also a picture of the rejection of everyone who does not believe in Christ and have everlasting life in Him. Right? When Christ returns, He will cast out all people into everlasting destruction. 
This is why it's so important, though, that if you hear the voice of God crying out to you today to not harden your heart against His Word, but believe. Right? This is why it's so important to understand the law-gospel distinction that we do not turn the gospel into our own law-keeping. Those who would do such have no share of Sarah and the new covenant, but rather they belong to Hagar, who is a mother of all who are slaves. This is the comfort, though, that Paul concludes the chapter with, and that he wants the saints in the churches of Galatia to derive. And that is this, that if you are a child of promise, then you belong to the free woman. right? You belong to the heavenly city. It means that for you, Christ has done it all. That for you, your iniquity will not be placed upon you, but you have forgiveness of sin. That you have the righteousness of Christ. That He has established an everlasting covenant that you are a part of that can never be broken. That you are justified by the sheer grace of God. That you have freedom in those things that once enslaved you. Right? That we have a liberty, brothers and sisters. But let us also see though that it's not a liberty to live however we desire. But it's a liberty, Paul says, to live as sons and daughters of God. Right? That's the liberty we have been given. And there is no greater privilege than that, is there? Right? There is no greater privilege than to live like a citizen of heaven now here on earth. There is no greater privilege to be able to walk with God now here on earth. Right? No greater privilege to have been given access to speak to God now even while we are here on earth. A privilege of, of knowing that there is a permanent eternal abode being established for us that we are called now as we walk this earth to look forward to that belongs to us that is ours. Brothers and sisters, may we do that. Having listened to the law and saying, I want no part of that. We have nothing, we want nothing to do with what it demands. But instead, looking to our great Redeemer Christ who Himself quieted and hush the law's demands by stepping in our place, right? By standing up for us, fulfilling the law's demands out of his infinite love towards us, right? The children of promise who were made so only by the grace of God. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your most encouraging word. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that that we are children of promise. Uh, that we have not come to Christ because uh, we uh, have kind of smartened up, but rather we have come to Christ because You have chosen us to be in Christ. That You have granted us the ability to, to believe the promise and become children of the promise and to receive this rich inheritance that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray for those, though, who have not come then to saving faith, who are children of flesh, who are in bondage uh, to the covenant of works. Lord, we pray that you would grant freedom to those people. Uh, there's nothing worse than being blind to salvation, to be blind to the way of salvation, to be blind to, to Christ and the, the, the love of God in Christ for all who would believe. And so, Lord, we ask that you, through the preaching of the gospel, would would open the eyes and ears of, of sinners here today. We likewise pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to live in light of the liberty that we have now in Christ. 
that we would not seek to put ourselves into bondage into anything, right? To any man, to any desire, uh, to, to any sin, but rather that we would simply rest in Christ, being happy, being slaves to, to God, and praying that God would empower us to obey Him and Him alone. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.